Good morning to you. My name is Sepúlveda, Bernardo Sepúlveda. I am a judge at the International Court of Justice. Uh, I was very fortunate in being elected as vice president of the International Court of Justice only last uh, February. Uh, I will be uh, the vice president of the court for the following three years, and it's a very great pleasure to be here today with you. The purpose of this lecture, and of course I'm uh, very grateful uh, to the UN Audiovisual Library of International Law for inviting me uh, for yet another occasion to deliver this uh, lecture. Uh, the, the points I will want to make are related to some key issues in the development of the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice. I will do my very best to provide you with an impressionistic view of uh, some of the topics which I find uh, most relevant in the precedents already established by the International Court of Justice. As you may know, the International Court of Justice is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations and stands on equal footing with the other principal organs of the United Nations. The court has two main tasks. First, to decide disputes between states, and second, to provide judicial guidance and support for the work of other United Nations organs through advisory opinions. Advisory opinions cannot be requested by individual states, but only by the General Assembly or the Security Council or other United Nations organs and specialized agencies authorized by the General Assembly itself. The role of the ICJ in the development of international law has been particularly important in the following areas. One, the use of force and its restrictions. Two, the demarcation of the territory of states. Three, the law of the sea and the delimitation of maritime spaces. Four, decolonization. Five, the protection of the environment. Six, human rights. And then international humanitarian law, individual rights, sovereign immunity, and of course, the interpretation and the application of treaties, which is uh, part of uh, one of the very fundamental tasks of the International Court of Justice. For the purposes of this lecture, uh, I will try to focus on some of these key areas uh, I have already mentioned. It would be, of course, impossible uh, to develop all the areas so I have to be selective. The court has delivered more than 100 judgments in contentious cases and 26 advisory opinions on a wide range of areas of international law since 1946. I would now like to paint, as I said before, a somewhat impressionistic view, given the time constraints, 
of the court's jurisprudence in few key areas, and those are the following. The use of force, the law of the seas, individual rights, environmental law, and two recent advisory opinions delivered by the court. Let's start with the question of the use of force. And for uh, these purposes, I will deal uh, fundamentally with the first case uh, uh, the, the court uh, 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 took in its, uh, 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 at the time of its creation, which has to do with the Corfu Channel case. And the second case will be the so-called Nicaragua case. The prohibition on the threat or use of force is a fundamental principle of the United Nations contained in Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter. This, provision, this prohibition comprises two aspects. First, that states refrain from armed aggression against other states. And second, that states refrain using force to violate boundaries and in reprisals. The latter aspect, in turn, serves two functions. First, to establish the basic rule that international disputes should be settled by, should not be settled by the use of armed force, and to establish a duty on each state not to threaten or use force against the territorial integrity or the political independence of another state, and of course, a correlative right for each state not to have force threatened or used against it. Force may be used only in self-defense or as authorized by the Security Council according to Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter. The use of force was an issue in the first court, in the first case before the court. The Corfu Channel case, as I said before, brought by the United Kingdom against Albania. On October the 22nd, 1945, two British destroyers struck mines in Albanian territorial waters in the Corfu Channel. The channel had been swept previously and was regarded as safe. The explosions killed 45 men and caused damage to the vessels. The United Kingdom then announced its, its intention to sweep the channel and did so in Albanian waters within the limits of the previous sweeps, despite Albania not having consented the Security Council recommended that the two governments submit the dispute to the International Court of Justice, and the court had to decide two questions. The first one uh, was the following. Was Albania responsible for the explosions, and was there a duty to make reparations? And then the second one was, had the United Kingdom violated international law by its Navy's activities in Albanian territorial waters on the day of the explosions and subsequent undertaking 
and subsequently undertaking a sweep uh, of the strait. While it was not proved that Albania had actually laid or colluded to lay the mines, the court concluded that Albania must have known about the mine laying and its failure to notify shipping vessels accordingly was a grave omission and engaged in its international responsibility. On the second question, the UK had not violated Albanian sovereignty on the day of the explosions, but had done so in undertaking the sweep of the strait. The court rejected the United Kingdom's argument that its object was to secure the mines as quickly as possible as a means of self-help or a new and special application of the theory of intervention. While the Albanian failure to carry out its duties after the explosion was an extenuating circumstance uh, for the United Kingdom's action, in order to ensure respect for international law, the court had to declare that the action of the British Navy constituted a violation of Albanian sovereignty. Following the court's judgment, Albania refused to pay comp compensation and diplomatic relations between the two countries were established only uh, in 1991. And that was because some 46 years after the incident, the United Kingdom and Albania announced that they had come to an agreement over, over the Corfu Channel case. The Nicaragua case, the other case I would wish to explain to you, concerned allegations that the United States was engaged in military and paramilitary activities against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua from 1979 to 1984. The United States claimed it was acting in collective self-defense with El Salvador, which was itself the victim of armed intervention by Nicaragua. While the three states were members of the United Nations and subject to the Charter, in accepting the jurisdiction of the court, the United States had made a reservation that disputes under a multilateral treaty would be excluded from the court's ju jurisdiction unless all treaty parties affected by the decision were also parties to the case. Since El Salvador was not a party to the case, the court could not rule on the United States' compliance with the UN Charter according to the view of the United States. It could, however, rule on the compliance of United States' action with the same norms of non-intervention and the use of force in customary international law. The United States decided not to take part in proceedings on the merits after the court found that it had jurisdiction to hear the case. That happened in, 18, in 1984. This did not preclude the court 
from giving judgment on the merits in accordance with uh, its own statute, and that's, what, uh, that's exactly what the court did. The court rejected the United States defense of collective self-defense and found the United States had breached its uh, obligations under customary international law. The court said that uh, the U.S. was in breach uh, on the following points. No, not to intervene in the affairs of another state by inter alia financing, training, equipping, and arm, arming the contra forces. Second, not to use force against another state. Third, not to violate the sovereignty of another state by directing or authorizing overflights over Nicaraguan territory. And fourth, all of the above applications plus the, obli the obligation not to interrupt peaceful maritime commerce by laying mines in the territorial waters of Nicaragua. Having withdrawn from the proceedings, the United States then refused to comply with the judgment, urging it to cease and refrain from all such breaches of its legal obligations and blocked Nicaragua's attempts to enforce the uh, judgment at the Security Council. However, the judgment was not devoid of all practical effects. The United States later admitted that its objective had been to overthrow the Sandinista government, which it had denied uh, while proceedings were pending. The judgment also formed the basis for international pressure to comply in the form of a non-binding United Nations General Assembly resolution passed in 86 by a vote of 94 to 3, uh, urging the US to comply. And the following year, in November 87, with only the United States and Israel opposed, the General Assembly against called for full and immediate compliance with the judgment. Now we will deal with the law of the sea and uh, the judgments of the International Court of Justice. Uh, the law of the sea is perhaps where the court has provided the most significant contribution, uh, especially in terms of the delimitation of maritime zones between opposite or adjacent states. As the court observed in uh, one specific case, the so-called Anglo-Norwegian fisheries case decided in uh, 1951, the delimitation of sea areas must be governed by international law. It cannot be dependent merely upon the will of the coastal state as expressed in its municipal law. Although it's true that the act of the limitation is necessarily a unilateral act because only the coastal state is competent to undertake it, the validity of the delimitation with regard to other states depends upon international law. The court made an important innovation in recognizing the validity in international law 
of the drawing of straight base lines for coasts deeply indented or fringed with islands. Despite what I said earlier about the court not exercising a legislative function, this decision has been widely regarded as a piece of judicial legislation and led to the incorporation of the system of straight baselines in the Territorial Sea Convention and the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But the coastal state does not have unfettered discretion as to how it draws straight baselines. Instead, it shall, and I quote, not depart to any appreciable extent from the general direction of the coast, and the baseline must be drawn so that the sea areas lying within these lines are sufficiently closely linked to the land domain to be subject to the regime of internal waters. Both these conditions were incorporated into Article 7 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Then came another decision by the court called the North Sea Continental Shelf Cases of 69 uh, with uh, uh, the following parties. Uh, the, the German Federal Republic, Denmark, Gen uh, 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 I mean, basically it was Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands. And this case was an important judgment on customary international law and also the first case dealing with the continental shelf. Here, Germany was not a party to the 58 Con Continental Shelf Convention, Article 6 of which stipulated that the equidistance line would apply in the absence of agreement or special circumstances. Finding that Article 6 of the Continental Shelf Convention did not reflect customary international law, the court established a Continental Shelf Doctrine. Under this doctrine, the Continental Shelf is defined as the natural prolongation of the coastal state's land territory into and under the sea. The coastal state has certain inherent rights in respect of the area of continental shelf which exists ipso facto and ab initio by virtue of its sovereignty over the land as an, and as an extension of it. This is the fundamental principle that the land dominates the sea. The limitation is thus to be effected by agreement in accordance with equitable principles and taking into account all the relevant circumstances in such a way as to leave as much as possible to each party. All those parts of the shelf that constitute a natural prolongation of its land territory without encroachment on that of other states. This case also provided the first enunciation of the court's concept of equity in international law. 
note through that the note though that this is equity infra legem within the law and not an, an autonomous equity nor judicial discretion ex equo et bono. Following criticism uh, that its jurisprudence has had become too unpredictable, the series of cases, including the Qatar-Bahrain case, the Cameroon-Nigeria case, the Romania-Ukraine case of 2009, saw the court applying more conservatively the principle of equidistance and special circumstances enunciated in Article 6 of the Continental Shelf Convention. In the Romania-Ukraine case of 2009, in particular, uh, the court provided a consolidation of the doctrines developed in previous cases. In that last case, the dispute was over whether there already existed an agreed maritime boundary around Serpent's Island in the Black Sea. The court found that there was no agreement in force delimiting the exclusive economic zone and the continental shelf and drew the boundary along the following principles. At first stage, after identifying the relevant coasts and maritime areas, the court applied the equidistant method to draw a provisional equidistance line between the adjacent coasts. Then, the second stage was where equity came into play. The court considered whether there were factors calling for the adjustment or shifting of the provisional equidistance line in order to achieve an equitable result. Third and finally, the court verified that this line did not lead to an inequi inequitable result by reason of any marked disproportion between the ratio of the respective coastal lands and the ratio between the relevant maritime area of each state by reference to the delimitation line. Thus, today, adjusted equidistance is the preferred method of delimitation for the exclusive economic zone, continental shelf and territorial seas. This has been an important trend towards the delimitation single of single maritime boundary involving all three maritime zones, the territorial sea, the continental shelf and the economic zone. As such, as such a boundary is not provided by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea or any other multilateral treaty, the court is only empowered to draw such an all-purpose boundary when the parties agree in requesting it, as it was the case in Qatar, Bahrain and Nicaragua, Honduras. The challenge facing the court remains as ever in balancing normativity and predictability against the individualization of the law and equity of the particular case. Let's go now to the question of individual rights. 
And this has to do basically with diplomatic protection and consular protection. The development of international law when it comes to individual rights has been equally inter interesting. Individual rights cannot be enforced directly before the International Court of Justice. It still remains a requirement that states bring cases on behalf of their citizens. Consequently, whether a case is brought, the, the, whether a case is brought is a matter for the applicant state to decide. Further, if compensation is ordered, it is the property of the successful applicant state and not of the individual concerned. The, the Nottebom case, a case between Liechtenstein and Germany, uh, which was decided in 1951, provides a striking foil to the more recent cases where states have brought suit concerning the alleged breaches of rights of their citizens. In Ottebom, Liechtenstein brought a case against Guatemala for alleged mistreatment of Mr. Nottebom, who had become a least Liechtenstein national in 1939, despite spending most of his adult life in maintaining his business activities in Guatemala. The court held that Liechtenstein's claim on Nottebom's behalf was inadmissible because Nottebom's connection with Liechtenstein were extremely tenuous without any bond of attachment, while, while in contrast he had a long-standing and close connection with Guatemala. The court reasoned that his naturalization was not based on any real prior connection with Liechtenstein, nor did it alter his manner of life, and therefore it was lacking in the so-called genuine link to act uh, to an act of such importance. The Lagrande and the Avena cases, which you are undoubtedly familiar with, concerned the right to consular assistance of persons arrested for death penalty offenses in the United States. In Lagrande, two brothers, German nationals resident in Arizona, had been convicted of murder in the course of, attempt, of attempted bank robbery. After one brother had been executed and on the eve of the execution of the other, Germany brought the case against the United States for not having informed them of the right to communicate with the German consulate in breach of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. Despite the court's order on provisional measures stating that the, that the U.S. should take all steps to ensure that Lagrande was not executed pending a final decision, the execution of Lagrande was carried out that same day as scheduled. The court held 
that the United States had breached its international obligations under the Convention by failing to inform the Lagrange brothers of their rights and by failing to permit the review and reconsideration of their conviction and sentences. The U.S. had also breached its obligation to comply with the court's order on provisional measures, which the court expressly held for the first time are binding. Perhaps the most noteworthy aspect of this case is the court's recognition of the individual rights conferred under Article 36 of the Vienna Convention, which, is, which it held the United States could not abrogate by its domestic law. Soon after the Lagrange case, Mexico brought a different case in respect of uh, a Mexican national whose name uh, was, is Carlos Avena and other Mexican nationals against the United States, also concerning the right to consular notification of Mexican nationals sentenced to death in the United States. The court held that this right had been violated and that the appropriate reparation would be for the United States to review and reconsider the convictions and sentences of these 51 Mexican nationals. While at first glance this case seemed to follow Lagrande, the court was more minimalist on matters related to circumstances in which local remedies must be exhausted, to the application of the so-called procedural default rule, and to the question of denial of justice. Finally, the most recent case, which uh, uh, is uh, uh, the, the Diallo case, is not one related to consular protection, but more related to diplomatic protection. This case concerns the alleged executive interference in the Democratic Republic of the Congo of the companies owned by a Guinean citizen, Mr. Diallo, as well as Mr. Diallo's arrest, detention, and expulsion from the Congolese territory. The court considered for the first time since the publication of the International Law Commission draft articles on diplomatic protection, the issue of diplomatic protection of a citizen's corporate and shareholder rights in customary international law, as well as domestic Congolese law on the rights of uh, shareholders of, company, of Congolese companies under the decree of the dependent state of Congo on commercial corporations. The court held that Mr. Diallo's human rights under the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights and the Africa Charter on Human and People's Rights had been violated and that the Democratic Republic of the Congo had also breached its obligations under the Vienna Convention 
on consular relations by not informing Mr. Diallo of his rights under that convention. The court thus found that the Democratic Republic of the Congo was under the obligation to compensate Guinea for the injurious consequences of its violations. Now I will turn to a different topic, one which is uh, somehow new uh, and uh, is related to environmental protection. Three very recent or pending cases show that states consider the court to be an important institution to solve such disputes, but I will describe only uh, uh, two already uh, concluded. The case concerning the pulp mills on the river Uruguay, a case uh, uh, between Argentina and Uruguay, uh, and then uh, I will refer to a previous case which has to do with Hungary and the, uh, uh, Slovakia. In the first case, Argentina alleged that Uruguay's authorization of a planned construction of pulp mills on the river Uruguay breached procedural and substan substantive obligations under the 1975 statute of the river Uruguay. The court held that Uruguay's failure to inform of planned works breached procedural obligations, uh, but it had not breached substantive obligations to prevent pollution and preserve the environment. The fact is that the, the, the court found that the quality of the waters of the river Uruguay had not been damaged as a result of the installation of this uh, plant uh, on uh, uh, Uruguay's uh, territory close to the river Uruguay. The other case, which uh, was submitted to the court in uh, 18, uh, 1989, uh, Hungary suspended and subsequently abandoned completion of the project alleging that it, it, it entailed gra grave risks to the Hungarian environment and the water supply of Budapest. Slovakia denied these allegations and insisted that Hungary carried out, carry out its treaty obligations. It planned and subsequently put into operation an alternative project only on Slovak territory, whose operation had effects on Hungary's access to the, to the waters of the Danube River. Uh, the case was brought before the court, and the judgment in the so-called, that's the name of the case, Gabchiko Nagimoros case, was delivered in 1997. The court held that the Budapest Treaty was still in force and that both Hungary and Slovakia had breached their legal obligations under it and were to negotiate in good faith in order to ensure the achievement of its objectives. As a point of interest, uh, 
the court made its first on-site visit ever in 1997 in relation to the Gabchico Nagimoros case. Given the complexity and the technical scientific aspects of environmental law, it's not inconceivable that the court may require increased use of expert opinions and evidence in future cases uh, uh, related to the protection of the environment. Very briefly, I will want to deal with one other aspect of the role of the court in uh, providing uh, judicial assistance in the development of international law. And that has to do with two very recent advisory opinions uh, the court has delivered on issues which uh, are indeed very complicated and uh, have political ramifications. Uh, the purpose is to illustrate the court's role in facilitating the formation of international norms and opinions, as well as shedding legal light on politically contentious issues. <clears throat> the first uh, issue I want to mention is the advisory opinion of 9 July 2004 on the legal consequences of the construction of a wall in the occupied Palestinian territories. The request for this opinion was made by the General Assembly on uh, formulating the following question, and I quote, what are the legal consequences arising from the construction of the wall being built by Israel, the occupying power, in the occupied Palestinian territory, including in and around East Jerusalem, as described in the report of the Secretary General, considering the rules and principles of international law, including the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 and relevant Security Council and General Assembly resolutions. That was the question uh, formulated by the General Assembly. In deciding to exercise its jurisdiction, the court did not consider that the question was only a bilateral matter between Israel and Palestine, but was of direct concern to the United Nations and to the General Assembly. The court considered international humanitarian law and human rights law norms and found, in a nutshell, that the wall impeded the Palestinian people's exercise of its right of, to self-determination and other civil and economic rights. This case is clearly of great political interest around the world, but the court's analysis was grounded in international humanitarian and human rights law strictly. No less controversial an event was the declaration of independence of Kosovo, <coughs> in respect of which the General Assembly in October 2008 
requested an advisory uh, opinion uh, stating the following question. Is the unilateral declaration of independence by the provisional institutions of self-government of Kosovo in accordance with international law? The court affirmed the legal nature of this question as framed and so no reason to reformulate its scope. In its advisory opinion of 2010 on the matter, uh, the, the court concluded that, and I quote, general international law contains no applicable prohibition of declarations of independence. I close the quotes. Further, the declaration did not violate Lex Specialis of the framework put in place by the Security Council in Resolution 1244 to ensure the interim administration of Kosovo, as it had not been made within the framework of interim self-administration, but by representatives of the people of Kosovo undertaking to fulfill its international obligations. It's perhaps somewhat artificial to say that the authors of the declaration, and I quote, did not act as one of the provisional institutions of self-government within the constitutional framework, but rather as persons who acted together in their capacity as representatives of the people of Kosovo outside the framework of the interim administration." Uh, close quotes. As I argued in a separate opinion, it might have been more plausible to conclude that the Assembly of Kosovo did not, uh, sorry, did adopt the declaration in the name of the people of Kosovo and to assess the legality of that declaration by reference to Security Council Resolution 1244 and the constitutional framework. Now, some concluding remarks. This is a very broad brush overview of the court's institutional role and function and the foray into several key areas of international law as the court has developed in tandem with uh, interactively and reflected in the court's jurisprudence. As the court's case load continues to increase in volume and substantive scope, the significance of the court's role in the international legal order remains extremely important and suggests a greater role for the court in the clarification and coherent development of international law and in providing guidance for, international, uh, for individual states as well as to the United Nations and other bodies in their practices and treaty negotiations. The court has no say over the kinds of cases that come before it, but every case that does is challenging and important in its own way and contributes to the continuous development of international law 
as well as the practice of the settlement of disputes by peaceful means. This represents the paramount importance of the court's institutional role. Thank you very much.